0: Awesome, man. So glad to have you here worshiping with us today. What a great time we've already had, just singing God's praises, hearing His truth proclaimed that way. And now we get to jump into Scripture and hear His praises proclaimed this way. If you have your Bible, celebrate with us. First Peter chapter 2. And we're going to uh, look into a passage of scripture today that's going to kind of continue us on in this series that we've been doing called Me and My House. Uh, we talked several weeks ago about the idea that, uh, that Joshua, when he had brought the people of Israel into the promised land and it was coming to the end of his life and he had a chance to stand before all of the Israelite people and just say, you choose this day who you will serve, whether the gods of the Ammonites are on the other side of the river or the Egyptians where we've came from, you have to choose for yourself who you'll serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so there was this idea we've been looking at early on in the series about a, an individual. As for me, I will serve the Lord, that you have to make that pursuit for yourself. That, that has to be a goal that you have to say, I want to grow personally in spiritual maturity. I want to get to know this God who loves me, this Savior who gave his life for me. And so I personally will follow after God. And then as you do that personally, it becomes the desire of your heart to bring others along with you. And so specifically within your household, your wife, your kids, your husband, whatever it may be that you say I love God and I love Jesus I've been changed by him he's transforming me more and more into a follower of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and so I want others to follow along with me so that's where we've kind of been and what we've been talking about the first thing we see in that is that uh, that we give the right to the Holy Spirit to take leadership in our life and we say God we want you by the power of the spirit of God in us as Jesus comes into our life and we've accepted his salvation and the spirit of God is placed in us and the spirit starts changing us from the inside out. And so that's the starting point is we give uh, priority to the relationship with the Holy Spirit to walk in relationship with him. And then secondly, that that is just a beginning step. The the next thing we see though, is that this is a lifelong journey of sanctification, that it is a continual process throughout your lifetime to walk with God, to know him and to be changed by him. And the things that we want to see in that is that we learn to say more and more no to sin and to self and our old way of life that we're crucifying our old way of life, dying to the old man in order to become made new, a new creation recreated in the image of Christ. So more and more in our life, we start to say yes to the things of God, to the things that look like Jesus and his desires for us. And so that kind of brings us to today where we want to dial into the the change that God is making in us internally and how that change impacts our relationships externally. That there are things all throughout our life where our faith begins to impact the world in which we live. And so where I want us to see spirit maturity impacting our lives today and playing out most is in the uh, the different relationships that we hold in our daily lives and how we live uh, in relationship with other people but bring Christ into the middle of that and so how we grow and how our relationships reveal, where we're maturing spiritually and where maybe we still have some shortfalls in areas that we can continue to grow. And so if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down first this morning. Uh, If you have our app, there's some fill in the blanks on the app, or if you're just writing some things down, you can do this. Uh, Just write down, spiritual maturity is uh, revealed in how I submit within different relationships. Spiritual maturity is revealed in how I submit to different relationships. And so today, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic, submission to one another, submission to authorities, submission to husbands, right, submission to, uh, to leadership. So we're going to be talking about that. I thought people would cheer and clap. Nobody did in the first service, and you guys didn't either, but uh, that's kind of where we're going to be. No, it's too late. Sorry. Um, Sorry. <laughs> But when you think about this kind of idea, I remember going back, we need to talk about the word submission to kind of start out with, because a lot of us have the wrong idea about what that is. But if you were like me, uh, guys, maybe specifically, ladies, you probably didn't do Well, this is Appalachia. We're all a bunch of rednecks. You probably did. Do you remember playing the game Mercy or Uncle, where you lock hands with somebody, right? And you just get in a knuckle grip. Guys, you with me? Ladies, anybody? All right, so you would do this, and then the objective was to try to make them get down on a knee, like you would just put pressure on them, and you would try to get them to get down on a knee, and they had to like submit to you, and then they would say either uncle or mercy, right? That's when you knew you won, and they lost, and you asserted your dominance and your superiority over them. And so, uh, so that was just kind of the way things worked, but you had this dominance over them because of your superb power and strength and authority, which is why I lost a lot. <laughs> In the game of mercy, and uncle, I was teaching my kids the other day to play this. Grayson is 10 now, and he likes to come up and just grab my hands. And he has the most flexible wrists and arms of any human on the planet. Like, I bend him and twist him to try to get him to and he just smiles at me and laughs. He's like, you're not strong, Dad. And so so I don't like him anymore, if anybody needs another kid. Um, But this kind of idea... In culture, where Peter's writing to, that we're going to look at in just a minute, is just this, that you yield to authority and power and strength. And the people of Peter's day would have recognized this because they lived under the Roman Empire, where everyone submitted to authority. Rome was the dominant authority, and you did what Rome told you to do. And if you were a wife, you were property to your husband. And if you were a child, you were property to your family. And if you were a citizen, you were property of Rome. And if you were in the government or lived under the authority of the government, you were under their power and submission to them. And they made you do what you wanted to. And so there was this social construct of saying, you will submit because you must and as Peter comes along, the New Testament writers, including Peter, start encouraging Christians to display the work of God in changing their lives when it came to this idea in area of submission. And so they start writing things. Peter's going to write to us today some things that help us understand. It's not a new idea in the Roman Empire. In fact, they were already living that way. But in each relationship that we're going to look at today, Peter teaches disciples of Jesus to voluntarily submit. Because This is a different way of thinking. This is something that that changes the mindset, not submit because this is the social's construct and you must, but submit because there's joy in it in following Christ. In honoring him and what he's called you to, you live in lives of submission in different aspects and in different areas. And so we're going to talk through some of those today. But here's what we start to see when we do this as believers in Christ. Rather than this being something where somebody's forcing us by the hands to get on our knees and say, you will say mercy, we're able to joyfully submit ourselves to others. That we do that as a way of finding honor and pleasure in the way that we relate with God and what he's called us to. And so in all of this, we start to look together this morning at 1 Peter chapter 2 and see how God calls us to display spiritual maturity in the various relationships we have in our lives. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 11, just read along with me. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so God works in us and with us to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And our growing faith is seen in our godly lifestyle in an ungodly world. That's the whole idea that Peter's getting to here. Peter shows us several relationships in which that can take place. And so I want us just to kind of go through this passage and reveal some of those relationships to say... Where is God growing us? Where is he showing us that there's spiritual maturity that's taking place in us because of the way we, re- we react and respond to authorities and relationships all around us? So here's the first thing that he talks about. He says that we have to understand how to live in this pagan world. Uh, and by the way, it's probably not the best idea to go around calling people pagans and just telling them, well, I have to work in this pagan job and I've got to go to school at this pagan school. You know, like that's not the best way of winning people over to Christ. But here's what he says, is I want you to know and understand that's out there. So live such good life verse 12, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. And so as you and I are maturing spiritually, we're displaying more and more good deeds in our life. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. And he starts to say, if you want to really exemplify the life of Christ in a world that doesn't follow Christ, let that be displayed in your good deeds, There should be things that we do that are like Jesus. Jesus told us when he was uh, on the earth, he said, you will do greater things than I, even here. So we're supposed to model and reflect the life of Christ in our lives. So uh, there are surely going to be people in your life who will mock you because of your faith, who will make fun of you because of your faith who won't understand you because of your faith. They are so blinded to the truth, so blinded to the idea of a need for God and a relationship with Jesus that they will have nothing for you. And so you're gonna be in places in your life where people will accuse you of wrongdoing. There are gonna be people who will say, well, you, you say all this stuff that you believe, but you don't actually live that out. You don't really do that stuff. Or I, I know behind closed doors, you're not this Christian person that you claim to be out in public. And Peter's basically saying, listen, you need to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, it's all just false accusations. Nothing sticks because your life and what you say you believe and the way that you live it out all mirror Jesus. So that's the way that you live in this world. When you look at our world around us, that's lost and outside of relationship with Jesus. What does God desire of us? He desires us to be like Christ in that So model yourself after Jesus. Then Peter gives us the first relationship to which we're supposed to find submission in our lives. Look at what he says in verses 13 through 15. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So we are a people who are under the submission of our nation's government, right? We live in a nation of laws and government, uh, government and we are people who submit to that. And so we're citizens of two kingdoms as Christians. We have a desire to live in the freedoms that we enjoy in this country, and we're citizens of this kingdom, but we also understand and recognize that we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And that when we come into relationship with God, one of the things that God does is that he calls us into his kingdom. His kingdom has priority in our lives over the earthly kingdom. We don't live primarily as citizens of the United States or wherever you might travel in the world or be from in the world, because that is home. And there are ways you live under the constraints of government in those places, but you are citizens of the kingdom of God. And the way that you bring the kingdom of God into this world is by knowing how to submit and live under the leadership and authority of the government you are in, in this nation. And so we're called into a submission in that. Now that doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything that our government says and does. It doesn't mean that you have to affirm everything that our leaders do. But you do have to place yourself under their submission. When our government tells us to pay taxes, we pay taxes. When our government tells us we need certain forms of identification, we get certain forms of identification. Whatever the rules are, agree or disagree, if they're passed and they don't neglect the truth of God, then you go and you submit yourself to that as the authority over you. Now, here's the rub and here's where it changes. When government starts to put on top of you oppressive things that go against the commands of God then as followers of the citizen, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have to say no to our earthly leaders in order to follow the commands of God. Peter and the apostles were, uh, understood this. When Jesus left earth and ascended back to heaven, <laughs> the disciples started to proclaim the kingdom of God and the, the uh, salvation to be found in Jesus. And the rulers brought them in to the Sanhedrin and they started condemning them. Don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Don't teach people in the name of Jesus. They even beat Peter and the other disciples And what did Peter say? Hey, you guys determine what's right or wrong, whether to obey God or to obey man. But here's what we're going to do. We cannot help, but to obey God. So if the rules are do what you say, and it goes against the commands of God, then I must politely refuse to not live in submission to your authority in that. It doesn't mean you go out and start riots. It doesn't mean that you become a hellraiser. It doesn't mean anything like that. It just simply means that you say, I've got to go on with the things that God has commanded me to do in submission to him. And if that hurts your feelings, then I'll deal with the human consequences. And as Christians, there are times where we have to just do that. Where the authorities over us may tell us, you can't talk about this. Don't use his name anymore. You're not allowed to gather together publicly. And at those times, that's where we have to say, our citizenship first and foremost is in heaven and under the authority of God. And you choose to punish us any way that you want and desire, but we will not submit to your ungodly laws and rules. We must be people who follow God first. So then verse 16 gives us a little bit of a how to do that. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. See, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. And when we come into salvation, we've been given freedom from, from those things. But he says, but when you leave and find freedom from sin and slavery to that in Jesus, that's not just a grace card that allows you to do whatever you want and behave any way you want to and act any way you want to and say anything you want to. Because you leave being a slave to sin And now the New Testament picture would say you become a slave to something different, a slave to righteousness. You don't just get to be you and do anything that you feel like doing that makes you feel good and affirms you. You look at your life and go, God set me free from sin in order to live in the freedom under Christ, but now I'm a slave to his righteousness. I desire to do what's right in the eyes of God under the authority of Christ by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Right, so in all of that, we see that Peter's pointing us toward obedience to Christ and giving us freedom away from sin. Now, Peter's going to stop here in verse 17, and he's going to kind of make a bit of a summary statement about what he's already said and what we're going to be looking at more today. So I want you to look at what he says in verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so this is a good place for us to just kind of understand today, where for the per- first part of the series, we've been talking about how do I grow in spiritual maturity? How do I follow after Christ? Now we're at a place where we're starting to transition and go, how do I and my household? How do those that I love, how do those that I have leadership over or influence in their life, how do I bring them along to this? These are the kind of things that we need to live out as a husband and wife together, These are things we need to live out as parents in teaching our kids. How do we do some of these things? So here's what Peter gives us in this summary: show proper respect to everyone. That'd be a great thing as parents to teach our kids, right? Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor, or live under submission to the authority over us. So the key way for us to take this is a simple evaluation of our personal spiritual maturity is just to ask four questions around that. One for each thing. Here you go. Here's the questions I would encourage you to look at in verse 17 and ask. Do I hold everyone in proper respect? Do I have a healthy respect for everyone that I come in contact with? Even people I disagree with, do I respect them? Do I show them honor? Do I love them like Christ? How am I doing in that department? It's a sign of of spiritual maturity. Here's number two. How am I doing loving the family of believers? God has called us into relationship in the church, and he's told us you should love one another. Not just to gather for worship on Sunday, but encourage one another, sacrifice for one another, be in life groups together with one another, be a part of community and fellowship. Let there be more to your spiritual faith than just the once a week gathering. Are you in a family where you love the people of God and you're encouraging that? Number three, do I have a right view of God that allows me to hold him in awe and have reverence for who he is? Peter just simply says, fear God. And that idea of fear is to hold God in reverence and awe, to respect Him properly, to see Him in light of who He is, not who I want Him to be, or I've made up about Him, but as He's revealed Himself in His Word. How do I come before Him in reverence and awe and submit myself to Him? Do you fear God in a healthy way? And then finally, am I honoring political authority? Peter just says, honor the emperor. When you think about your spiritual maturity and your growth as a follower of Christ, how are you doing? when it comes to putting yourself under the authorities around you. And so those are just some questions to help us when Peter gives us this kind of summary statement to ask some questions. That's going to bring us to the next relationship where spiritual maturity is able to be exemplified. And this is a fun one. It's to those that we work for. And so here we go. Look at verse 18 through 20. He says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. So while Peter is writing to people who were slaves and were treated as property, that doesn't always necessarily mean the same thing that we think of in our English vernacular and our historical understanding of slavery. And so I want to bring some light and some thoughts to this this morning, because when we think slavery, we think of one thing. In the Roman Empire, it meant that to an extent, but it meant something else as well. And so uh, I read something this week in studying from William Barclay in one of his writings. He said this, "He so said to understand the real meaning of what Peter is saying, we must understand something in the nature of slavery in the time of the early church. In the Roman Empire, there were as many as 60 million slaves, slavery began with Roman conquests, slaves being originally mainly prisoners taken in war, and in very early times, Rome had few slaves. But by New Testament times, slaves were counted by the million. It was by no means only menial tasks which were performed by slaves. Doctors, teachers, musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards were all slaves. In fact, all the work of Rome was done by slaves. Roman attitude was that there was no point in being master of the world and doing one's own work. So let the slaves do that, and let the citizens live in pampered idleness. The supply of slaves would never run out. And so Barclay kind of brings this idea in going, everyone was a slave in Rome. Lawyers, doctors, it didn't matter. You were a slave. You were under oppression of Rome. And So as we read this today and relate it to our current situation, the term slave in the passage can be thought of in this idea of being a servant or being an employee. Like we can relate that to our current situation and go, this is what the New Testament would have us understand. How do we submit to those who are in authority over us when they're our bosses? And so Peter addresses that. He takes into account that as followers of Jesus, not all of our masters are going to be people who treat us well. He even says, we're to submit to bosses and supervisors. And then notice what he says here, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. He understands and takes into consideration, hey, your faith may put you in a work environment where people don't understand your beliefs and they're not gonna like your beliefs. In fact, it's gonna be tough for some of you to work where you do because of your beliefs. And yet you still place yourself under the authority of your employers, of your boss. And so we need to learn how to do that. In, in the case where there is struggle when they treat you worse because of your faith, in that case, Peter tells us not to rebel against their authority, but to find yourself being punished for being written up for, for going against them. But he says, you submit yourself there. And if you have to suffer under unjust persecution, then do that for Christ. Don't rebel against it, don't fight against it maybe there's just a part that you have to go through in order to submit yourself to that authority and that leadership. And so for us, we get a chance to say then that puts us in a place where our coworkers and others around us start to look at us and go, why why do you let him talk to you like that? Why do you let her treat you like that? Why don't you get in her face and tell her off? Why don't you give him a piece of your mind? Why don't you just stand up for yourself and on some level, I think we show our, our co-workers and those around us that we go, man, this is, this is how I represent Jesus. I don't like what they're doing to me. I'm not excited about it. I'm not passionate about coming to work and being you know, reamed out every day. But I'm not going to, to mock this person and I'm not gonna belittle them and I'm not gonna berate them and I'm not gonna make a, a mockery of them. As I can stand under the authority of others with Christ behind me, I want to walk and find how to honor God in all of that. So at this point in verse 21, we get to the part of the text where Peter changes our focus, and he actually says, look at Jesus. If you want to know how to live under submission to authority that's unjust and ungodly, just look at Jesus. And he gives us our example, look at verse 21. He says, to this you were called, meaning for us to submit to unjust authority, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. (laughs) By his wounds, you've been healed. And so we've been saying throughout this series, and Peter points it out again here, in our pursuit for spiritual maturity, Jesus is the focus and Christ-likeness is the goal. That's the next thing I'd love for you to write down if you're taking notes this morning. In our pursuit of spiritual maturity, Jesus is our focus and Christ-likeness is our goal. And so he says, you have no further to look if you want to know how to bear up under the weight of unjust suffering than Jesus. If you want to know how to submit yourself to authority, look at Jesus, who went before a trial that was a mockery and didn't defend himself. Who who took a beating, severe beating, and never yelled out at his persecutors. Who went to the cross and had nails driven in his hands and his feet and never condemned but forgave those who were doing the very act. So he says, you look at Jesus and you're going to see how to act. Here's what Jesus did when it came to relationships that Peter's addressed so far. Jesus lived in submission to God and earthly authorities God was always the highest priority, but he lived under the submission of earthly authorities as well. Number two, he trusted that justice would come from God at the proper time. He said he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and properly. And at the proper time, there will be justice for you in the things that you're going through that are difficult as you live under submission in this culture to authorities over you. God knows how to bring justice for his people. It may not happen in your timeline, but God will get the last word in these things. And then finally, he gave of himself sacrificially so we can be made right with God. Right? And so that's how we learn by Jesus' example, how to exhibit spiritual maturity in the face of these different things. Now, what we're going to talk about next is in these relationships that displaying spiritual maturity works the same way in our homes. That Peter's going to get to a point where in your Bible, if you look, you go, we just reached the end of chapter two. Now there's a break and it's the beginning of chapter three. And I don't know how you read your Bibles. I know sometimes for myself, I'm guilty of just kind of going, hey, I'm going to read a chapter. I'm going to get to the end of that chapter and I'm going to treat it like I would a novel that I was reading. I finished a chapter. I'm going to close my Bible. I'm just going to go on. And tomorrow I'll pick back up and I'll read the next chapter and I'll try to maybe remember if it's connected to something before, but maybe not. Peter's book here and everything mostly that's written in the uh, the New Testament is our letters. They're meant to be read all together. Peter wasn't sitting around going, and that finishes chapter two. Now, number three. That wasn't Peter. Somebody else put these numbers in later on. So he goes, for us, we need to see that chapter two and chapter three just roll into each other. He's been talking about living in submission to authorities and different places and um, when it comes to government. Now he's gonna take this into our home and he's gonna ask us, to learn how to grow and display spiritual maturity in this world by Jesus' example, by growing in spiritual maturity in our marriages, by focusing on Jesus' example. And so Peter is going to address husbands and wives, showing us what spiritual maturity looks like in our homes. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He says, Wives, in the same way, meaning tied back to chapter 2, where there was unjust suffering and there were different things that were going on in submission to other authorities, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When you see the purity and the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty and the gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Aren't you guys glad you showed up for church today so we could talk about submission and marriage? All you married people in the room be like, I have been waiting for a message like this forever. Like, thank you so much, pastor, for talking about this. Probably not. None of you did that. Coming to church today being like I just want to learn how to submit to my husband. I want to learn how to love my wife better. Well, guys, maybe that one for you, but ladies probably not. But when we think about this, remember again the idea of what we talk about with this word submission. It gets taken out of context and gets the wrong idea put behind it in our culture so many times. And what we talk about is not a submission where we're going, you've married me, now do what I say. You will be under my authority. But this is rather a loving submission, a willing submission, to come into a relationship and say, there is a way that God has ordered things in his church and in the family, and as a husband and as a wife, I want to order our ways the same under God's authority. And so in Roman times, in the Roman Empire, submission was already happening like this, except wives had no value. They weren't significant. They were essentially seen as property. And Peter is telling them to submit to this relationship now as Christians, not because they're forced to, but because it honors Jesus. And Peter is specifically addressing uh, one point. He's addressing a situation as he's writing this part of his letter to wives who have become followers of Jesus, but their husbands are not. He's saying, so wives, what's this gonna look like? You've come into a relationship with Jesus. Your husband is a non-believer. How do you live in relationship with him? And how do you try to bring him into your faith? How do you encourage your husband toward a walk with Jesus that would change his life the way that it's changed yours? That's the specific context that he's looking at here. And so here's what what Peter tells Christian wives, how to lead their husband toward faith in Jesus. They're to submit to their own husband. Now, notice, ladies, that he doesn't say submit to everyone. You're not less than. Women are not less than men. There's not an unequal balance in who you are as a person. God sees us distinctly in the same light with equal value, but we have different roles. And in the home, he says, Women, you submit yourselves to men. And you go, How and why would I do that? Uh, Ephesians kind of helps us walk through this. Ephesians 5, 21 through 24. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's for all of us as Christians, to the church. He says, Submit to one another. That's a way to reverence Christ. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So, God has placed this order for spiritual leadership in the church and in the home. Our values are equal and our importance is equal, but our roles are different. So, men, it's important for us to be the spiritual leaders in our home. God has called us to that as Christian men. But ladies, if you're in a relationship where you are a follower of Christ and your spouse is not, then here's what Peter wants to get to. He wants us to understand how you can share your faith with your husband and encourage him toward Christ. And he says this, your ability to share your faith is without words, but by your behavior. I mean, that kind of goes, flies in the face of everything that we think. Like, I should share my faith. I should tell him what I believe. I should get my Bible out and read it in bed at night in front of him. So he has to hear me read the Bible, and he's going to get a little bit of Jesus in his mind, even if he's not trying to pay attention. It's going to be in his subconscious, and he's going to eventually come to Christ. And Peter goes, no, 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 no. Don't use words. It's hard, right? He goes, here's how you're going to do it. By your inner beauty. You're going to show him a purity and a reverence in an inner beauty that's formed with a gentle and quiet spirit. Doing things to be externally beautiful is not bad. And I know how this verse gets hit a lot of times. A lot of people go, see, Peter told us women aren't supposed to do their hair, they shouldn't wear makeup, and they can't wear nice clothes, and he told them not to wear jewelry. And all the women in the room are like, I hate Peter, he is not a cool guy at all. And I'm here to tell you that Peter's not telling you to do that. Peter wasn't thinking there's no place for doing your hair and wearing your makeup. And getting your nails did, and wearing jewelry, right? Like all of these things are fine. You should, ladies, you should look nice for your husbands. You should let your image of beauty to him reflect your value that you have in him. But Peter's saying, when it comes to your faith as a believer and your lost husband, there is no amount of beauty that you have that's going to win him to Christ. You're not going to walk out of the bathroom after an hour of getting fixed up and your husband go, you are so beautiful. I want to know Jesus right now. Tell me. (laughs) That's not going to happen. He says, but here's what will win your husband after a year, after two years, after five years, after 10 years of you following Jesus and living in reverent submission to him and honoring him and putting him above yourself in some things and showing a change in you, a maturity, a godly lifestyle that you have to pray and believe that over time your husband's gonna say, I've been watching your life and this Jesus that you've been following, I see the change he's made in you and I want that too. Peter says that's how you're gonna get your husband. Now, just for an aside, it's not in my notes, but I felt like it was important to say this morning. If you are in a dating relationship, high school, college, young adult, whatever, this is not permission for you to do what we call missionary dating. Right, like this is the idea of going, oh man, that guy over there, he's so, so attractive and he's so nice and he's so good to me and I just, I know he's not a Christian and I know I am a Christian, but you know, I'll just win him to Jesus through our dating relationship. That is a bad idea, all right? The Bible tells us expressly not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, So as you choose to date people, the first question you should ask is, hey, what's your faith in Jesus like? Men and women, that goes for both of us. Where's your priority when it comes to your relationship with God? If you're not a believer, then thanks for paying for my coffee today, but this is probably our last date. We can be friends, but I can't date because dating might lead to marriage and I don't want to be outside of a relationship that God wants for me. And so we have to be careful in that. All right. That part was free. You don't have to pay it all for that today. Okay. <laughs> all right. So the illustration Peter uses here was from Sarah. He goes, if you want to know what this looks like, look back at Sarah and Abraham, old Testament reference, you know, your old Testament, you go, Sarah and Abraham, Abraham was the father of the nations and all those kinds of things. God gave him a promise. And Sarah was his wife and Sarah was beautiful. So again, when Peter's saying, you know, you're, you're showing your husband how to come to Christ shouldn't be from your outward beauty, but from inward. He goes, just look at Sarah. This is what Sarah was like. She was outwardly beautiful. Two different times in Abraham and Sarah's life together as husband and wife, they went into a new country. And as they were going in, Abraham would say to Sarah, hey, when we get there, tell them you're my sister, not my wife. Because if we go in and they think you're my wife, they might kill me to get you. They'll take you for their king. Because you're hot, Sarah. And we know that's true because the second time this happened in their relationship, Sarah was 70. And Abraham was still like, you are so beautiful, baby. Tell them you're my sister, okay? Like, that's just how things were flowing in their relationship. And Sarah, probably reluctantly, if I know women right, didn't go, that's a great idea, man. I've been telling people you're my brother all along. Like, I don't even claim you, right? Like, none of that. She just goes, listen, that's not how I would do things, Abraham, but you're my Lord, So I'll submit to that. I'll do what you're asking. If you think that's what's going to keep you out of hot water with the king of this country we're going into, I will do that. And so Peter goes, you look at Sarah, who was beautiful, but Sarah's beauty wasn't found in her outward adornment. It was in her heart to submit herself to the authority of her husband. And so guys, This is what it means for us as we start talking about being men now. We've talked to women. Let's talk to guys for just a few minutes, because Peter takes that next step next in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, and he's talking to Christian husbands this time. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So he says, listen, you guys, you need to be considerate of your wives. Men, we shouldn't demand and go, hey, look, God put me as the head of the household. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to be this and this and do this and do this. And I want a sandwich. So go get me a sandwich. Like That's not what he's telling us at all. Because you be considerate of your wives. He's writing again to a culture. Remember where the wives were seen as property. They had no value. The New Testament writers and Jesus and the gospels did more to elevate women's rights than anything else in history. And as Peter's writing to these husbands, he's going, guys, you have attached yourself in marriage to a woman who is seen in their culture with no value, they're just property. And they're a weaker vessel. Now, on some level, that means physically weaker, but more of what he's talking about is he's going, they have no rights in society. They're weak, they're exposed. When they go out into society, nobody's watching out for them. So husbands, be considerate of your wives. You love them well. You take care of them. You bring them under your protection and your arms. You care for them. And, guys, for us to consider our wives, get to know them as deeply and intimately as possible. What motivates your wife? What drives her? What does she love? What does she hate? What's her strengths? What are her weaknesses? How do you encourage her in her goals and her dreams and her ambitions? Consider your wife. Don't just go through life going, well, I'm the head of the house, so it's all about me, baby. It's all about me. You're just alone for the ride. That's not what Peter wants Christian husbands to do at all. He goes, you come into a relationship with your wife and you be considerate of her. Ephesians, Paul talks about this as well. Let's hit this quickly and then we'll start to wrap up. Ephesians chapter five, verses 25 through 33 Paul writes, it says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the words, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So when you look back at 1 Peter, he tells men to be considerate and treat their wives well with respect as that weaker partner. This passage in Ephesians kind of gives us that same idea. To go, hey guys, we are supposed to love our wives well like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He sacrificed himself for it. He gave up his very life in order to save his church and to bring provision and protection to his church. So guys, that's how you live in relationship with your wife. You love her to the point that you would lay down your life for her. You love her the same way you love you. You feed yourself, take care of yourself, watch out for yourself. You do those same things for your wife. You honor that relationship. And this is the picture of a wife, why she would submit to you as a husband. Why in the world would a woman come into a relationship and say, hey, God has told us he's the head of the church, the husband's the head of the family, I'm gonna submit myself under your authority, and in this relationship I see you as above and I'm gonna order myself under you and under your authority. Why would a woman do that? Guys, it's because of the way that you love her, that you sacrifice for her, that you wash her as with the water of the word, that you present her back to God without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, when we receive our wives at the altar, we stand at the altar, big life change. And you'll receive your spouse in one condition. And Paul's telling us in Ephesians that by the time your life is over, either when you die or when Jesus comes back for us, you're gonna give your wife back to Jesus. And our responsibility as husbands is to say, I received her in one condition. And throughout our lives, I've loved her and cared for her and nourished her and washed her with the word of God. And I'm presenting her back to you today better than the way I found her. That's a picture of a man worth submitting to. That's our objective and our goal. For Heather and I, this has been something that I've been so thankful for in our marriage, that she's been willing to, to do things even when it maybe goes against her natural desires and inclinations because she's followed my leadership. One of those things was coming here to be the pastor. We'd been in Arkansas for just a few years. Had bought a house, had gotten settled, our kids were in school, and I started going Heather, I think God's changing what I'm supposed to be doing in ministry. I've done youth ministry for 15 years. I think he wants me to be a pastor and I think we're supposed to move in order to do that. And She's like, we just bought a house. I don't want to go. But as we prayed about it, she started saying, you know what? If this is God's direction for us, because you've loved me so well, I'll go anywhere you go. I'll follow you. And listen, ladies, here's what didn't happen. She didn't come to Kingsport going, I hate this place. I don't want to move here. I don't like this. I'm never going to give this church a chance. Like, I don't even want to know people here. She came with a smile on her face, joyfully, encouraging me along the way. Not reluctantly, not bitter hearted, but lovingly. Why? Because I've loved her and invested in her and poured into her so she said, that's a picture of a husband worth following, worth submitting to. Here's the last thing I want us to hit, and we're done. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. The lens of this, I'm going to take slightly out of context, and I know I'm doing that, so I want to tell you ahead of time. He's looking at this passage through the lens of talking to the church. I want to put an additional lens in front of it. You know, like when you go to the eye doctor, and they go, better one, better two, better three, Joel, better four, Five, like Joel, you're blind, like I am, I'm blind. There's lots of clicks on the eye doctor thing. I want us to see this of the lens of him talking to the church, but I want you to put an additional lens in front of it and go, how does this look in my marriage as well? All right, so it's the additional lens. Verse uh, eight, 1 Peter 3, eight. Finally, all of you, and in that, all of you and husbands and wives, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's the last thing on your notes. You can't expect godly results in your marriage or any other relationship if you have ungodly actions that are behind them. If you want godly results, if you want a godly marriage, you need godly actions. If you want godly results in the relationships you have, you need godly actions behind them. For us, in all of these different things we've talked about this morning, and thanks for hanging with me. I know there's a lot. I know we've been talking for a while. Here's what I would say to leave us. Every relationship you're in is a relationship God uses to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. How you steward those relationships, whether it's to your spouse, to the government, to your bosses, to our Christian brothers and sisters, how you find yourself living in submission and how you steward those relationships impacts your continuing growth in spiritual maturity. And so I want to just pray over together this morning and ask God to continue to help us grow in those things. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.